Bic Ha and Hui Han Pan came to Canada from Vietnam hoping to achieve the immigrant dream. However, that dream turned into a nightmare on November 8, 2010 when their 24-year-old daughter Jennifer made a distressing call to 911 reporting they were in the middle of a terrifying home invasion. I'm Jelsey May and this is Exhibit May. November 8, 2010, the Pan family experienced a regular Monday afternoon in their hometown of Markham, Ontario, Canada. Jennifer's mother, 55-year-old Big Ha, had run errands around town and visited her father before returning home at 3 p.m. while Jennifer had been studying piano history for an upcoming test. 57-year-old Han, Jennifer's father, had been at work at Magna International, an auto parts manufacturer in Aurora. He arrived home just after 4.30pm and called his brother to arrange a trip to Home Depot to buy a few items. In the meantime, the mother and daughter enjoyed a meal together before Big Ha headed off to her weekly line dancing session with her friend and cousin at a nearby church just as they did every Monday. At around 6.15pm, Han returned from shopping, had dinner alone while reading the latest Vietnamese news on the family computer, and went to bed shortly after. At approximately 6.30pm, Jennifer was paid a visit by her friend Adrian, and the two hung out in the basement and watched the latest episodes of Gossip Girl and How I Met Your Mother. At 9pm, Adrian departed and Jennifer went to her bedroom upstairs and watched The Amazing Race. Not everybody will be jumping for joy when they find out they're facing a 720- At around 9.15 p.m., Big Ha returned home and Jennifer briefly went downstairs to speak with her mother before returning to her room where she continued watching TV and had a phone conversation with her old coworker and friend, Edward Pacificator. Her mother, who typically spoke a mix of Vietnamese and Cantonese, then called out to her husband, Han, in English with an alarming tone. As heavy footsteps approached the stairs, Jennifer quickly hung up the phone and sat frozen in her room, listening to the shouting outside her door. Han had been asleep and abruptly awakened by a dark figure standing before him, demanding to know where the money was. Without his glasses, he could barely see the man who was wearing a baseball cap pulled down low over his eyes. The intruder seized Han with a firm grip on his neck, dragging him out of bed and down the stairs while pressing a gun against his head. He noticed another intruder also wearing a baseball cap with a gun pointed at his wife's neck. Upon seeing her husband, Big Ha's Cantonese voice cracked as she asked him how the intruders had entered their home. Han said he didn't know. Upstairs again, one of the intruders who had dreadlocks located Jennifer and bound her wrists at her back. Holding her at gunpoint, he insisted on money. Jennifer handed over $2,000 in cash she had set aside. Afterward, he pulled her into the master bedroom, questioning the whereabouts of additional funds. When she claimed ignorance, the man and his accomplice ransacked the room and discovered some money in Big Ha's bedside table. All the dresser drawers had been pulled out and emptied, and the mattress had been flipped over and removed from its frame. Aside from these actions, no other furniture in the house had been tampered with. Next, Jennifer was pulled downstairs to where her parents were pleading and was made to kneel by the base of the stairs. 
Amid Bekha's cries, Han informed them that he had $60 in his pants upstairs and conveyed that his possessions held substantial value. One of the intruders then pulled Jennifer back upstairs to her parents' bedroom once more. There, she pointed out approximately 1,100 in US dollars, which remained from a recent trip they had taken for a wedding. She hoped that this sum would satisfy the men and lead them to release her family, but the men had different intentions in mind. Jennifer was secured to a railing at the top of the staircase while one of the men below scoured the kitchen in search of Bekha's purse. Growing frustrated by his inability to locate it, he used his pistol to strike Han forcefully on the back of his head. Blood sprayed onto the living room couch as Han crumpled to the floor. The intruders then led the couple to the basement couch and covered their heads with blankets. While Han maintained his composure and accepted his fate, Big Ha was crying and pleading with the intruders in her broken English not to harm their daughter. One of the intruders reassured her saying, don't worry, she's kind and won't be harmed. Han was then shot twice. The first bullet struck his face, fracturing the bone near his right eye and grazing his carotid artery. The second shot hit his right shoulder and exited through his back. At the same time, Big Ha let a horrified scream and was shot three times. The initial bullet entered the base of her neck, followed by the second through her right shoulder, and the third entered her skull and exited, causing instant death. With this done, the intruder swiftly departed through the front door. Back upstairs, despite being tied to the banister, Jennifer managed to utilize an 8-inch gap and retrieve her phone, which had been tucked under the waistband of her yoga pants and called 911. Jennifer was startled as her father's cries echoed in the background while she spoke to the emergency operator. Despite his severe injuries, Han regained consciousness and discovered his wife slumped beside him surrounded by blood. He called her name multiple times, but it was clear she had succumbed to her deadly injuries. Han, in excruciating pain and covered in blood, was also hindered by his lack of glasses, which left him blind. Despite this, he crawled up the stairs to the main level of the house and somehow found the strength to run through the front door, urgently shouting for assistance. As he fell to the ground outside, his shocked neighbor, preparing to head to work in the adjacent driveway, rushed to his aid and promptly dialed 911. In a matter of minutes, the police and an ambulance arrived at 238 Helen Avenue.
Constable Mike Stesco and his partner Brian Durock were the initial officers to arrive at the scene. They approached a distressed and bloodied Han crying in agony, who recounted that unknown attackers had assaulted him and his wife while their daughter remained inside the house. As additional officers arrived at the scene, including Constable Mason Baines, they entered the Pan's home and quickly heard Jennifer's cries for help from upstairs. As Stesco and Baines went down to the basement, Derek assisted Jennifer. Upon reaching the basement, they discovered the lifeless body of Big Ha, dressed in silky green Winnie the Pooh pajamas and lying face down in a large pool of blood in front of a sectional leather couch. Baines attempted to find a pulse, but Big Ha was declared dead at the scene. Upstairs, Constable Derek released Jennifer from her restraints with a pair of scissors, later comparing her body position to the Little Mermaid statue in Copenhagen, Denmark. Her wrists had been fastened to the banister and her ankles were tied together with a long shoelace. She was then escorted outside towards a paramedic where she called out to her father who was also being transferred into an ambulance himself. Both were rushed to the Markham Stovell Hospital, and on the way, Jennifer was told that her mother had succumbed to her injuries. When Jennifer reached the hospital, she underwent a thorough physical examination, which confirmed she had no injuries but was prescribed anxiety medication. Afterward, her phone was seized and she was placed under the care of Constable Derek, who transported her to the Markham Police Station and inquired about her recollections of the home invasion. At 2.45am, Jennifer found herself in an interrogation room alongside Detective Randy Slade of the York Regional Police. Knowing that the young woman was likely in shock, Slade tried to be as gentle as possible as he questioned her. You're here voluntarily to help us that you don't have to talk to us if you don't want to, but the importance of talking to us, and if you're talking to us, the importance of telling the truth. And if you don't tell the truth, there's criminal consequences for not telling the truth. That's all that all that stuff had to deal with, okay? You can't point the finger at someone else. You can't tell us to go off in a different direction. You just gotta tell us the truth. Well, I know. Exactly, exactly. And do you have any questions with respect to what I've just told you? It's just like sitting sometimes like, parts come back but I didn't remember when I spoke No one is and that's the process. This is going to be a long process. This is an initial statement from you. We may, you know, as you remember other things, you may be asked, you may want to come in and tell us things. Okay? No one is going to tell you how to give us a per, give a perfect statement. You just do what the best you can given the, given what you're dealing with, okay? An agitated Jennifer grew restless, nervously rubbing her legs as she recounted the horrifying ordeal of three armed men breaking into her home and almost claiming both of her parents' lives due to the disappointment over the lack of money. The next thing I know, I think I heard my parents going down the stairs and my mom was asking them for me to come with them. They wouldn't let me come with them. After they said, the last thing I heard them say was, you lied? You lied to us. You lied to us. And then I heard two pops. My mom screamed. I yelled out for her. And a couple more pops. Take your time. And I think I heard my mom say or moan or something. And then they did one more before they left. And then one of the guys said, we have to go now. It's been too long. 
and then they ran out the door. And I think once they were out the door, I heard my dad go up the stairs. And at that point, I had my phone in my in my on me behind me that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I when I when they when I thought that they had heard them all leave, and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called 911. The young girl wept uncontrollably, lowering her head, yet strangely, her eyes remained dry. While it is possible that she was experiencing shock, Slade took note of her unusual behavior. She provided a detailed description of the intruders, including one with a medium build and dreadlocks who was black, another with an oval face, and a third with a Caribbean accent. When Jennifer was instructed to recount the events again, investigators noticed discrepancies in her narrative during the second retelling. However, what really raised the detective's concern was Jennifer's statement that she had screamed for her father, but Han did not stop. But I, I still hadn't heard anything from my mom, and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, moaning and making sounds. And that's pretty much uh, what I... So what happens? Continue on from from now to the point that the police arrive. I was just on the phone with the secretary or the operator. I begged her not to leave me alone. And that my dad was outside. I, I was yelling to him, but he wouldn't come in. I don't know if he didn't hear me. He didn't come in. I think he went to look for help. Her father fled the house without showing concern for his injured child. The detectives were curious about the nature of Jennifer's relationship with her parents, and their investigation revealed many secrets that the young woman had kept hidden. The following day, police thoroughly investigated Helen Avenue, including canvassing hundreds of homes in the surrounding area. Seated inside their mobile police vehicle, the officers received an unexpected visit from a young, unidentified informant who claimed that Jennifer's former boyfriend, Daniel Wong, was involved in drug dealing and that Jennifer was acting as his delivery person. The police immediately contacted Daniel, who came to the Markham Police Station to provide a statement. His testimony became a significant turning point in the investigation, prompting the police to scrutinize Jennifer's life and family history more closely. Bikha Pan and Hoi Han Pan were political refugees who had independently resettled in Canada following the conclusion of the Vietnam War in 1979. They later married in Toronto, Canada, established their home in Scarborough, and eventually celebrated the arrival of two children to complete their family. Jennifer was born in 1986, and three years later, they embraced the birth of her younger brother, Felix. Pan and Big Ha were dedicated parents and diligent individuals driven to provide their children with a childhood and opportunities they had never experienced themselves. Both of them held jobs at the auto parts manufacturer Magna International and adopted a thrifty lifestyle until they could afford to buy a spacious home in Markham. Han took pride in his Mercedes while Bick owned a Lexus and together they had accumulated $200,000 in savings, a testament to their hard work and financial discipline. The Pans had exceptionally lofty expectations for their children, in particular Han, epitomized the archetype of so-called tiger parents, a term used to describe a strict Chinese parenting style that pushes their children to excel academically to meet their high expectations. 
When Jennifer was just four years old, her parents enrolled her in piano lessons followed by figure skating classes. Before she reached elementary school, her room was already filled with numerous awards. As she grew older, her after-school routine involved heading directly to rigorous figure skating training, often returning home at 10 p.m. Only then would she begin her homework and stay up until midnight to complete it. During Jennifer's high school years, her parents closely monitored her, prohibiting her from engaging in anything Han believed might impede her success. At 22, she had never been involved in sleepovers, traveled on trips with friends, participated in social gatherings, attended school dances, or explored the world of dating. The only significant experience she had was a two-week band trip to Europe, which took place towards the end of her high school years in 2003, during which she ignited sparks with Daniel Wong. She felt like a prisoner within her own home and displayed signs of anxiety and depression, eventually leading her to self-harm by cutting at a young age. The unrelenting pressure and her perception of constantly falling short eventually pushed Jennifer to fabricate her own report cards in an attempt to convince her parents that she was earning straight A's. Her inability to pass calculus during her senior year prevented her from graduating high school, ultimately resulting in the loss of her early admission to Ryerson University. So hang on a second here. You told to me that you told me that they never knew you didn't go to university. When did they find out that you didn't go to university? I told them that I graduated, but I never went to university. That I went for two years, but I never finished. Okay. So you did actually tell your parents somewhat of the truth that you never went to university, or, but it's, it's half-truths. Yes. She informed her parents that she would enroll in Ryerson University in the fall of 2004. She even mentioned that she had secured a $3,000 scholarship. In an effort to make her lie more believable, Jennifer acquired second-hand textbooks and diligently studied materials related to pharmacology, the major she claimed to pursue at the university. She meticulously took notes, which she later displayed to her parents, who believed she had transferred to Toronto in 2006. Faking the completion of her degree, Jennifer informed her parents that she had commenced volunteering at the hospital for sick children in a blood testing lab. However, Han and Big Ha grew suspicious when they noticed their daughter lacked a hospital uniform or identification, leaving Big Ha to secretly trail her daughter to work one day, and what she discovered shattered their world. Jennifer's entire life had been a lie. While their daughter had been frequenting coffee shops, providing piano lessons, working at a restaurant, and even maintaining a secret relationship, the pants had thought she was on her way to a promising career. I didn't go to university, but I told my parents that I went for a few years, right? How long, ago did, you t- how long did you tell them? How long ago did they find out? I t- told them everything when I was going, I was seeing Daniel and that I only, I told them I only went partial school. Okay. And I told them all. And all when was that? What year was that? When, how long? Ago? A year and a half ago. So is this when the ultimatum come down? Is after the, is that at that point in time? The ultimatum came about a year. Uh, there, there's always been ultimatums, like they always gave me a second. But the one that you made the choice where you were at, because you say that was about a year and a half ago too, is that part of when you came clean to a certain extent? You say you came clean. Coming clean would be mom and dad. No, I didn't, I didn't I never come went. clean, but I came like when I, when I said, when I said what they know. Upon uncovering Jennifer's deceit, Han wanted to sever all ties with her daughter and eject her from their home. 
Still, Big Ha managed to persuade her husband to permit Jennifer to remain, but not without repercussions. Jennifer had her phone and laptop confiscated and was prohibited from ever seeing her boyfriend ever again. Back to another very difficult question. But if I don't ask it, I'm going to be, it's an obvious one. The resentment that you had, that you may have had towards your parents for the interference in your relationship and your life and essentially locking you down in your house. At the end of the day, I love my parents and I chose to be with them. And if I wanted to, I could have just left, but I didn't. I wanted to stay with them and take care of them. So this wasn't some evil plot that you thought up to? Oh my God, no. Jennifer experienced profound devastation upon losing Daniel after their seven-year secret relationship, only to discover he had quickly entered a new relationship with a girl named Christine just shortly after their breakup. Her intense love and attachment to Daniel pushed her to an emotional breaking point. She came up with a wild story claiming to her ex that strangers gang-raped her in her home and a bullet had been mailed to her, stating his new girlfriend orchestrated everything. Have you ever received, other than that, letter? That other thing I also made up, the bullet in the mail, that made, I made that up. And how long ago was that? Just a few months ago. Okay. And was that an attention grabber for him again? Yes. You still have feelings for Daniel, don't you? Yes. Okay. So you're having trouble with that. You're having trouble getting over the fact that the relationship is over. Uh, because of the I've, terms of how it happened. I've accepted that, that it's over, but I still want to take care of him. Okay. But unfortunately, I made a decision and I, need, I had to stick by it. Your relationship with Daniel was broken up because of your parents' ultimatum, not because you didn't care for him anymore. Yes. That's, that's an obvious what you can say, right? Because yes. you still have feelings and you're still trying to trigger him with the bullet. You know, even just that... that are these text messages you're receiving, are they fictitious? Are you making that up? No. 100%? Okay. Now, the letter you received, is it fictitious or did you make it up? Or, or sorry, is it fictitious or is it real? It's real. It's real. And but how, sorry? No, it just happened like before most of this stuff happened, so I just brushed it aside. Okay, so it happened before what? most of what stuff happened? most of like before I knew about her and before I knew like before she messaged me ever okay so the the uh, incident those two incidents that you made up the bullet and the and the, yes. the being raped those yes. never happened On November 12th, four days after the home invasion, and after sustaining a gunshot wound to his face, Han emerged from his coma. His survival was astonishing considering the severity of his injuries. He also displayed an incredible recollection of the events that transpired that horrifying night. He recounted to detectives that during the harrowing ordeal when he and his wife had guns pointed at them, Jennifer had appeared strangely at ease and had freely moved about the house. Furthermore, Han noted that one of the intruders had engaged with his daughter in a manner that did not resemble a typical armed assailant threatening a victim. Their tone had been soft and conversational. He couldn't help but suspect that his daughter had some involvement in the attempted double murder. 
On November 22nd, almost two weeks after the incident, Jennifer underwent another round of questioning, where this interview marked a notable shift from previous ones. This young woman was no longer seen as a victim. Instead, she had transitioned into the role of prime suspect and was questioned for three hours and 45 minutes. I don't know if that's in fact happened. I'm trying to find a rhyme or reason for why your house was targeted. I'm still trying to figure out how they got in your house. Like you didn't hear, you didn't hear a doorbell. You didn't hear a door knock. You didn't hear a door kicked in. You didn't. I was. I said I was watching no, TV on the phone. I. I don't know how. Yeah, I, I. I know we went over that back and back and forth. We don't know how. So, somehow they got into your house by getting through your mom down on the lower level, right? Because she's the only one who's down she's there. She's the only one down there. So it's very confusing, but generally random events are not, in most cases, random. There's a rhyme or reason why they've come to your house. But from what you've told me inside the house, the only thing that you hear them saying to you is they're looking for money. So you're telling me that you, you had no involvement in what happened, meaning not saying how the outcome came, but you, you had no involvement in, in any type of illegal activity that would have drawn you or the attention of you to have bad people come to your house looking for large sums of money. You're not involved in this any which way because the question obviously stands, Jennifer, is you're upstairs and they're downstairs, right? So it's a natural concern when why would they leave you alone? Why would they not do the same to you? You can't answer that question? The only thing I can say is he said I cooperated. The, but I asked him to take me. The number What's one guy? Mom? The number one guy said you cooperated. There's no, you had no threats. And again, we're back to the fact that you admittedly lied. Okay, not to me, right? No. Not to me. No. You admittedly lied. You've lied to your parents, right? About going to school. You've lied to, to Danny about being, Daniel about being raped and about receiving a bullet. Who's to say this whole thing isn't a lie? That what you're telling me is a lie? Because if you are lying, it's the most cold-blooded thing that I have ever faced in my life. But even though Jennifer was starting to break down, she still withheld the complete truth. Instead, she claimed that the entire ordeal had been a failed attempt to commit suicide and her parents were never meant to be hurt. Jennifer claimed that she wanted to kill herself for many years, but as she couldn't do it herself, she hired a hitman. Needless to say, the police didn't believe her story, but they now had enough to arrest her. In the end, the police were able to piece together a more credible storyline based on digital evidence. Even after the breakup, Jennifer and Daniel maintained a close connection. It was during this period that she sought Daniel's assistance in eliminating her parents. Daniel subsequently introduced his ex-girlfriend to an associate from the underworld named Lenford Crawford. Jennifer and her newfound acquaintance engaged in a series of exchanges that culminated in an arrangement with Jennifer agreeing to pay him $10,000 from her future inheritance of half a million dollars. Lenford then reached out to a man named Eric Sean Cardi, also known as Sniper, who in turn contacted David Milvaganam. On November 8, 2010, Lenford sent Jennifer a text that read, After work, okay? 
will be game time. Before bed that night, Jennifer unlocked the front door, granting free access to David and two additional assailants to enter the home. The identities of the other two individuals remained undisclosed as Daniel and Lenford were reportedly at their workplaces during the attack and Eric claimed to have been a driver on that particular night. However, all three individuals were apprehended in the early months of 2011. The trial of Jennifer Pan and her accomplices commenced on March 9, 2014 in Newmarket and persisted for a 10-month period. Each pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. The precise identity of the individual responsible for shooting Big Ha and Han remained undisclosed. During the trial, more than 200 pieces of evidence were introduced, including an extensive collection of over 100 messages exchanged between Jennifer and Daniel. Additionally, over 50 witnesses provided testimony. Among these witnesses, Han's account of these events proved particularly significant. He spoke to the jury about the heartbreaking story of how he and his deceased wife had only wished for the best for their daughter. The trial also delved into the trauma Jennifer had experienced due to her upbringing under the strict tiger parenting style, but despite these revelations, it ultimately did not sway the outcome of the case. On December 13, 2014, Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, David Milvaganam, and Lenford Crawford were convicted of the charges they faced. All four were sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for 25 years. In a separate proceeding, Eric Carty was sentenced to 18 years in prison in December 2015. He had pleaded guilty to conspiring to commit murder and was eligible for parole after serving nine years. Jennifer, now 37 years old, will undergo a case review and potential provisional release assessment at the age of 59. As of 2018, she served her sentence at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Furthermore, she is legally prohibited from contacting Daniel. When Jennifer and the other convicted individuals complete their 25-year prison terms in 2039, they may seek parole as part of the legal process. If this request is granted, Jennifer could reintegrate into society. Still, she will perpetually remain under the watchful eye of the authorities much as her parents had done throughout her life. Jennifer's father, Han, expressed a sentiment saying, When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday. If you or anyone you know is thinking about suicide, emotional support can be reached by calling or texting the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 or by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate the show, and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast. 